Amen. Take your copy of God's Word this morning, if you will, and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. As we begin in verse 22, looking at God's Word together this morning. Acts chapter 2, as we begin in verse 22. You know, I I think about how God has blessed us in, in so many ways to be able to learn and to know more and to really just study things. Uh, for our area, obviously, education is a big deal. Would you say that? I mean, for our parish and even beyond, whether you have the universities, the community college, the high schools, the elementary schools, the middle schools, education is so important in, in our lives. And really, for me, education has been a cornerstone of of my existence, of of being able to study and go to school and do the different things in life. Uh, You know, we uprooted and moved our family, or Leslie and I moved ourselves. That was the family at the time. We moved ourselves toward New Orleans so that we could do uh, extended graduate work there. And while I was there, I got to work in so many different areas, uh, studying the pastoral role, studying theology, studying the original languages, studying some, the different types of things that they teach at seminary. And I know some of you think, well, they don't teach much, but they, they do teach a few things at the seminary. And even when I moved into my doctoral work, uh, my major was preaching communication. So I got to Looked through sermons and we studied different ways to deliver sermons and communication theory and those kinds of things. My minor was theology, but I, I was just, man, I would just eat it up just to read old sermons. I know that sounds crazy and that sounds stale maybe and boring, but I would love to read just old sermons, old messages that people had delivered through the years. And I probably would still be doing that, except Leslie finally said, Reggie, this is the last check I write for tuition. You will graduate this semester. It will happen. And I said, yes, ma'am. And I finally graduated. But I would probably be reading in a seminary context. I still like to read those things. I still like to see the message of different preachers. I, I, I like to see how God equips each one in his own personality to declare the truth because there are so many different ways in which you can bring the message but the message is always the same that's what I have found and when I've looked at Acts chapter 2 and we began this last week of the Holy Spirit's coming on Pentecost and the first fruit that was given to the church as the great harvest that begins on the day of Pentecost we see Peter preach a message And it is the timeless message that all preachers everywhere at all moments should be able to share and preach because it tells us the basics of the gospel. Now, again, last week, we know that Peter stood up. A crowd had been drawn because of the sound, because of uh, the manifestation of fire, because of the tongues that were intelligible tongues that people understood as they had gathered there for that festival. People had come and people wanted to hear what was going on. Many of them began to think that these people were drunk. And again, Peter stood up and he said, no, this is a fulfillment of scripture. Listen to what Joel said to us about how the spirit would come and how there would be, there would be sons and daughters who would prophesy 
to the witness of the Messiah. And now, in verse 22, he gets to the heart of the message. And I want to share that with you this morning. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. I want to stop just there a moment. Every message and every sermon that we preach and we share with individuals should somehow center on Jesus of Nazareth. Here in the very beginning, Peter is preaching, he's sharing, and the central theme will be this one person, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. And it's so important for us today in our world to remember that Jesus has to be the focus of all of our messaging. There are great messages to preach. There are great messages to talk about how we help the family in marriages and we need to talk about interpersonal relationship skills. We need to talk about how we live life daily. But I want you to know that all of that should be done, all of that should be done with Christ at the center. He must be the message. I I want you to hear this morning that if you hear a message at Temple Baptist Church that can be preached just as strongly in some mosque or some synagogue somewhere else, then I have failed my job. Because what is distinctive about us is Jesus. Christ has made the difference in our lives, and thus he, it makes a difference in our marriages, in our parenting. It makes a difference in everything else. When you go to church, it shouldn't be just how we are to do these kinds of things separate from Christ. It is to how we are to do these things as we live the life of Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. I'll never forget what Dr. J.D. Gray, and some of you who are here actually had him as a pastor, I think some years ago at First New Orleans. But Dr. J.D. Gray recalled the scripture where that group of individuals went to Philip, and what they said to Philip was, Sirs, we would see Jesus. And Dr. J.D. Gray took that scripture and he put it on his pulpit so that every time he stepped into the pulpit, he was reminded that the people were to see Jesus. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. Then he goes on to say about this one. He says, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Now, it may be the way I'm trained, but I found three points in Peter's sermon. Not surprising, huh? I found three major points that he was trying to make or he was speaking about. This first one that you find in verse 22, basically, is that God affirmed Jesus through the signs and miracles, through the signs and miracles that Jesus himself performed, that God affirmed, that God attested to who Jesus was. He authenticated Jesus' ministry. That word attested, that word that means affirmed, it also spoke about an individual that was chosen For a certain position in a place of power, a certain official that this individual would be. It could talk about somebody that's already in that position or somebody that has been elected to that position and is going to assume that position very soon. Listen to what 
Peter says. Peter says that God attested, that God elected, that God voted, that God endorsed Jesus as the Messiah through the miracles and signs. Today we have all kinds of political things going on in the world. And we'll have elections that will come up before too long. Some of you are already saying, please don't talk about all that stuff. But you'll have people who will come out for other individuals. People who will make endorsements. You'll see all kinds of commercials. I think uh, toward November or so, we're going to have several different elections. The general election this year in the state of Louisiana. Aren't you looking forward to those commercials? I mean, you'll see them everywhere. People will be endorsing, embracing. They'll say, I'm for this person because of this, or I'm doing this. I'm standing behind this individual because of his stance on that. And, and, and you'll hear all those things. It's the same type of language, but it just means that the God of heaven stood and publicly endorsed Jesus as the Messiah. That he endorsed him, that he appointed him, that he brought him to a place of position. He accredited Jesus. You would say that the God of heaven voted for Jesus if you wanted to. In my house, we have some different terminology, as you can tell, that we will use from time to time. Some of it is from a Mississippi upbringing. Some of it is because I've been here in the state of Louisiana now, and I've kind of adapted to the ways but we have certain types of language that we use. One thing that's probably distinct in my family as opposed to yours is we will use the word vote to describe who we are cheering for in a certain sports contest. So, for example, last week when the Saints were playing, what was that team? The one, you know, where they had the cheating and all the stuff and... Something like that. We would say that we were voting for the saints. I know that seems a little strange, but we've just kind of adopted it. The kids, they spoke about that when they were younger, and I kind of liked it. So we just say we're voting for them. We vote for the saints. Who are we going to vote for on Super Bowl? We have no idea. Probably, who cares, right? We were robbed. I hate to digress, but I'm just... Anyway, Jesus has the power. Just always remember that. <laughs> we voted for the saints. <clears throat> what I want to say here is that when you look at this word, the idea that he, he was attested by God, it was that God endorsed him, cheered for him, voted for him. God said, this is the one. And how did he do it? How did he prove his endorsement? How did he, he prove his accreditation? He proved it through the miracles and the signs. The signs. I love the translation or the definition, I should say, of the word sign, which means a miracle with a message. When you see a sign recorded for us in the scripture, it was a miracle with a message behind it. Now, I always believe that Jesus was compassionate, that he worked in people's lives, that he saw the brokenness. 
and he came forth with a spirit of healing, I believe that he was moved. So I believe, yes, he was compassionate toward people. And I believe he loved people. But I want you to know that the miracles were not just a sign of compassion. It was a sign of his messiahship, of who he was. Each and every miracle that he performed in Luke chapter 7. Remember the same Luke who records the message of Peter here. Luke recorded the words of Jesus. In Luke chapter 7 verse 22, Jesus said, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. What did Jesus mean by that? Jesus said, you go tell John, because when John hears this, these miracles, these signs should attest to who I am. He should know. The signs and the miracles attest to who Jesus was. John, in his gospel, John will write some years later than Luke will. And John will purposely set forth what we call the book of signs in those first few chapters of his gospel. And he will record the different miracles that point to the message about Jesus and his messiahship. He'll talk about how the water will turn to wine. He'll talk about how the nobleman's son was healed. He'll talk about how the lame man at Bethesda who could not get into the pool was healed by the Lord Jesus. He'll talk about the feeding of the 5,000. He'll talk about how Jesus can walk on the sea. He will talk about how the blind man from birth received his sight through Jesus. And then he will culminate this book of signs with the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And what John was saying to you and what really the testimony of Scripture will continue to speak to us is that those signs and those miracles remind us that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the one that was elected, voted on, that he was the one who was selected by the God of heaven to come on our behalf. And not only was he the Messiah who came, he was the God in flesh because only God could achieve such miracles and signs. It is interesting that later on in history, there will be a Roman emperor by the name of Julian. He will be referred to as Julian the Apostate. He would write against Christianity. But even in his writing, in some ways, he could affirm the Christian witness. Unintentionally, but he would affirm. Oh, let me share this. Julian the Apostate wrote, Jesus has now been celebrated about 300 years, having done nothing in his lifetime worthy of fame, unless anyone thinks it is a very great work to heal lame and blind people and exercise demoniacs in the villages of Bethsaida and Bethany. So he's writing to say, Jesus didn't do much, unless you really think it's a big deal to heal lame people and blind people and cast out demons. Pretty big deal. And those miracles, those signs, attest to who Jesus is. And the way I love Peter's message here, the way he frames it, he says, God did through him in your midst 
as you yourselves also know. So here he's preaching in Jerusalem. And there are people from Jerusalem. There are people from all the other nations who've gathered for Pentecost. And he says, God affirmed Jesus through these miracles, the ones that he did in your midst, and you yourselves know. There are different terms used in the Greek for know or knowledge. This one would mean you know it for a fact. In other words, I could call you as eyewitnesses. I could allow you to even share about what you saw Jesus did. And if you didn't see it, you've heard other people in your midst talk about what Jesus did. It's amazing how the high priest and how others in the religious leadership really did not deny all of the activity that Jesus did, all the miracles. They would just ascribe those miracles to other sources. They would, not, they would not doubt, even in the resurrection of Lazarus, you never have them really doubting. You have them determined to kill Jesus afterwards because they know that he's a threat. The power of Jesus as demonstrated in the miracles, in the signs, attests to who he was. And the testimony of all of those who were in the congregation, they could speak to that as well. Let, let me say this. You and I certainly have not um, been privy to the earthly ministry of Jesus with our own eyes. We've seen it and heard it through the scripture, but we've not necessarily seen it with our own eyes, but we still see God work. And this God, this Jesus, is still the one that has the power. And each time we see those miracles and those signs, we should be reminded of who he is. And that God has affirmed once again that Jesus is the Messiah. So the first point, God affirmed Jesus through the miracles and the signs. Second point, God raised Jesus from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. Now that means that Jesus died. Look at what he continues to say in verse 23. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. He says that you killed him. That you, even though you should have been affirmed in who Jesus was, and you should have recognized the witness, you killed him. You participated in this deed. Here you're going to have in this text the balance between human responsibility and the sovereignty of God. That here you have human hands putting Jesus to death and yet unwillingly, unknowingly they are fulfilling the very purpose of God. Peter says you killed him. Now, obviously here, he is talking in the context of the people of Israel. He's talking to Jewish individuals. But I want you to hear this morning that you and I need to be very careful about placing all the blame upon the Jewish people. And we need to be careful about any type of wrongful attitudes that we would harbor in our heart toward Jewish people. 
There should be no anti-Semitism at all coming out of the believer's mouth or in his heart. Too often in years past, there were churches who actually used this to teach an anti-Semitic type of message. That's not what he says here. As a matter of fact, he says, you all have killed Jesus, but you conspired with lawless hands, the ones who crucified him. I would even suggest to you here that, that Peter is saying that the Romans who were involved in this, they were part of this tragedy and they came as Gentiles conspiring with the Jews to put Jesus to death. In other words, all of you have some type of responsibility for Jesus' death. I could go to this place, I think, today and have a good scriptural foundation for it because it says that God predetermined that God had a purpose, that God had a knowledge of what he was going to do through Jesus from the very beginning. Why was Jesus coming in the first place? What was the purpose? What was the plan? Jesus was going to come to restore God to man and man to God. He was going to provide the sacrifice. Why? Because we were sinners. Because we are sinners. So he came for us. So before you start pointing fingers just at all the people who are to blame for Jesus' death, I believe Peter could point the finger right to us. Because you know why Jesus died? Because of you. Because of me. I, I know that seems to offend some of our sensitivities, but our sin is what placed Jesus on that cross. You and I are just as culpable as anybody that was in that crowd that day. You killed him. That's what Peter says. But God raised him. You killed him. You thought that you had had the last say. But our God raised Jesus from the dead. Look in verse 24. Whom God raised up. I love that word there. To be raised up. To be resurrected. It, in the original language. It is the word like anastasis. Here in the blended service this morning. We sang that oh praise the name. And in parentheses it said anastasis. We sing it in the gathering. It's one of my favorite songs. New songs. That would be out there. What does it mean? Well, it means to be raised up, to be resurrected. But if you were to break the word down, it means to stand again. To stand again. In other words, it says that God made Jesus to stand again. His body was lifeless. And yes, he was dead. Don't try for a moment to believe in all of this stuff that says that he swooned or that he just happened to pass out for a little while and all of this kind of stuff. Jesus was dead, but God made him to stand again. He put the breath of life into his physical body and his physical body was raised. Whom God raised up. Having loosed the pains of death 
because it was not possible that he should be held by it. The pains of death. This is one of the strangest passages I've ever studied in the terminology that Luke chose. For example, it says the pains of death. When you look at that word pains, it actually means birth pains. Birth pains? How? Birth pains and death? That doesn't even seem to coincide together. I mean, birth pains. Birth pains are pretty bad. Ladies? I'm trying to be very careful on this. I have never experienced birth pains. Okay? So, never. But I could tell. Our third child, Rhett, he came very quickly. As a matter of fact, I was out preaching that Tuesday morning at a senior adult revival and Leslie had been to the doctor and she called and I said, hey, what did the doctor say? The doctor says it's going to be any time. I said, what do you mean any time? She's like, well, pretty much like any time. Like right now, tomorrow. I said, what are they going to keep you? No insurance, you know, you got two more days. And I'm like, what? I said, you stay there. She said, what do you mean stay there? I'll, you stay there, I'll come. We're going to stay in the parking lot of women's <laughs> hospital tonight. We're going we're gonna to be there. I said, what did that doctor say? What did she say? She said, well, she said to tell you that if the baby came, you're to take your shoestring. What? <laughs> no. No, 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 no. No. That evening I saw her wince. Because the doctor said, come as quickly as you have any type of contraction. And I saw her wince. She was sitting on the couch. I said, hey, did you just have a contraction? She said, yeah, I think so. I said, let's go. And she said, no, it's not like five minutes apart and this and this and that. No, let's go. Did you hear what the doctor said? And we were driving down airline. I was flying. We got in there and, and we were not able to have all of the, or let me say, she was not able to have all of the medical stuff that is necessary to kind of help out during those moments and uh, it was rough especially for her <laughs> the birth pains he says God raised him up having loosed the birth pains of death very difficult to pain the, the worst pain that you could feel I think also the reason that he used the word birth pains here is because somehow it is through the death of the Lord Jesus that somehow we experience a new birth. He said, he loosed the birth pains because it is not possible that he should be held by it. That word held means imprisoned. It would be used by some of the New Testament uh, Believers to describe being arrested. In other words, death had tried to arrest him. And yet, death had no authority over him. It could not continue to hold him imprisoned. And God raised him up. It is a central aspect of the gospel. 
that Jesus Christ was resurrected. He was attested to by the Father. God affirmed him, but God raised him up. And he brought him to life. And how that should be a central aspect of our lives. There is no other faith, there is no other religion that you'll find that will preach this. There will be no other founder of any great movement that you can say that that individual died and they were raised from the dead. This is the central aspect of our hope and belief. And it plays in every day to our lives. You know what Hebrews said? Hebrews chapter 2, 14 says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan and to destroy the works, ultimate works of death itself, And that for those of us who live in fear of that moment, to live in bondage to that moment, you and I, we can be free. Because he has been resurrected. How that encourages me daily. Too often as a pastor, I stand beside a bed just as I did this week. And there is a lifeless body that is there. Body that has no breath. Body that has no animation. And yet, I can stand by that bed. I can pray with that family. I can know beyond a shadow of a doubt. I can have confidence, not because some preacher told me some long time ago. I have confidence because I know that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead and that through his message that we can be delivered from the fear of death itself because one day there will be a resurrection for each and every believer who has trusted in him. Peter said, God raised him up. He is not some martyr. He is a living king. I'm not going to read all of these verses But I would encourage you to go look at what Peter says about David and how David said this would be the Messiah that would be resurrected. And how this Jesus, because of his resurrection, is even greater than King David. That's a big statement in the middle of Jerusalem. Because even today, if you were to go to Israel, you'll see David's name everywhere. Even today, he is so well respected. Today they have a place that they say marks David's tomb. We don't know today if that's the exact place, but we know that in the New Testament age, they venerated that area. They knew exactly where David's tomb was. And even Peter, he said, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David that he's both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, David, he was great, he was awesome, he's dead. But Jesus, he's greater than David because he's alive. 
And even during these moments, they could still go and look at the tomb. There's no argument. There's no argument anywhere in here that the tomb was still had a body in it. Everybody assumed the body was gone. It was whether or not you believed that the body had been stolen or the body was been resurrected. And Peter says, God raised him. Verse 32, this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Remember Acts chapter 1 verse 8, what's their purpose? You will be witnesses unto me. Same word here. You're, they say, we're witnesses. Ask us. We saw him. We saw him alive afterwards. He is resurrected. Makes all the difference. One of the reasons I think the disciples never recanted. You say, what? Think about it. When you, when you look at those disciples, all of them except John will be executed for their faith. Everyone. And John, he'll have persecution and exile and all that. Don't you think that if this for a moment was some type of fraudulent conspiracy, that one of them would have broken? Nope. Not a chance. Why? Because they had seen Jesus alive. When you and I understand that Jesus is alive, we will live every day with the power and the strength that he has given us. William Lane Craig says, without the belief in the resurrection, the Christian faith could not have come into being. The disciples would have remained crushed and defeated men, even had they continued to remember Jesus as their beloved teacher. His crucifixion would have forever silenced any hopes of him being the Messiah. The cross would have remained the sad and shameful end of his career. The origin of Christianity therefore hinges on the belief of the early disciples that God had raised Jesus from the dead. God raised him. Third point, some of you are worried because it's 10 o'clock. Peter wasn't worried so much about having everything just finely tuned in his sermon as far as uh, space and time. He just... He gave us this third point. He just kind of left it there. And then he gives an invitation, which we'll talk about next week. But this is, this is what, Jesus, what Peter said of Jesus. Verse 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received him from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. What did he do? God exalted Jesus in heaven itself. He authenticated his ministry. Affirmed him as the Messiah through the witness of the signs and miracles. God raised him from the dead. And then God exalted him. His humiliation had given way to exaltation. And he rules over his enemies. Even this day. Therefore, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus 
whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He says, when you take all of this together, you've got to reach the conclusion that God has demonstrated Jesus to be the Lord and Christ. It's back to that old C.S. Lewis determination, right? And when you look at Jesus' life, you have to determine one of three things. Either he's a liar, perpetuating fraud upon people, or otherwise he's a lunatic. I mean, somebody claims to be God and he's not. He must be a madman. Or otherwise he is Lord. And if you were to knock those other two options off the table, which I think you have to, you only recognize that he is Lord. Oh, that word know there in verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know. You remember I told you there were some different terms earlier. In like verse 22, it says, as you also know, or you yourselves know, you know for a fact. Here he says, you need to know. And the word here, the term means you need to know by experience. You know for a fact all the stuff about him. But now, house of Israel, you need to know him by experience. That God has declared him to be the Christ and Lord. I would just say to you this morning that you and I can know all the facts about Jesus and we can still be lost. You can answer all the Sunday school questions. You've studied the Bible. That's great. But have you known him by experience? And have you submitted yourself to him as Christ and Lord? Today you can do that. When we have these invitations at the end, it's a moment for you to come, to pray with a minister, to talk about things going on in your life. But also, if you've never accepted Jesus, it is your moment to come and to give your life fully to him and to follow him. Would you hear what God has said about this one? How God's affirmed him, God raised him, and now God has exalted him. And would you come and give yourself to him? Surrender to yourself to him fully with all of your life, with all of your being. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. And Lord, it wasn't a nation that held him on the cross. It wasn't the Roman soldiers. Your son told us that nobody took his life, that he willingly lay it down for us. And we know the reason he voluntarily gave it for us was because of our sin debt. And we'd all fallen short of the glory. Thank you, though, that through that sacrificial death and through the empowering moment of the resurrection, Lord, thank you that we can have life even today. And God, I pray that you would continue to call people to you, that they would recognize you, because this is the timeless message, the same message that's been preached for 2,000 years. And it's the message we continue 
we continue to stand upon. Lord, work in our midst now. Help those that are lost to be saved. Help those who are saved to be encouraged and empowered and blessed. We pray it in Jesus' name.